The scripture for today is Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. And I have noticed that we have two different pew Bibles out there. So if you have this small Bible or the thinner Bible, it's on page 920. If you have the thicker Bible, it's on page 979. If you have your Bible, I have no idea what page it's on. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mel. Uh, a couple of quick things. First, we sent out a note about this in Trinity News, but if I can just reemphasize it here. If you're, especially if you're an old faithful here at Trinity, if you could help us in the coming weeks to take some of these high dollar seats in the front, this is a great problem to have, but we are filling up every Sunday. And so these two, these three rows right here, just amazing view. You're right in the spit zone. And so it's just, it's really wonderful. So if you could, if you could help us with that, we do have some plans for how to get some more seating in the back. Uh, but until we're able to turn that around, uh, if you could help us by sitting toward the front, that would be a blessing, uh, a, good, a good problem to have, like I said. Uh, also, I want to let you know that uh, Jack Franklin Vecchio was born this last week. Um, yes. I'm trying to find the stats here so I can give them to you, because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, 8.3... Eight pounds in a giant cone head is what I've got here. So don't tell Jack I said that, but uh, so sweet to celebrate with the Vecchios this week. Uh, also, just all of you ladies, I just want to thank you for coming back this week after last week. Um, that was a, a culturally interesting text to explore, wasn't it? Um, in the midst of sort of where we're at as a nation and as a world now. And I'm glad that you're here and committed to submitting to the scriptures uh, for all that they are, the, the living, breathing word of God. So glad that you're here. Um, I was hanging out with a former cop the other day. We were grabbing coffee at White Horse Coffee and Creamery in Jenkintown, if you've been there before. And we were sitting down, and as we were, he took the window seat, which if you know anything about that place, the window seat is super uncomfortable. Uh, but he took the uncomfortable seat and he told me he wanted to sit there in the uncomfortable window seat uh, because it allowed him to be oriented to the door. Of course, as a, as a former cop, it makes sense, right? You want to keep yourself oriented to the one place that could introduce danger into the situation. So no matter where he's at in eating establishments or drinking establishments or whatever, he's always orienting himself to the door so we can keep an eye on it. Um, 
Last week, and then again this week in Ephesians, Paul is calling us to something similar, a similar kind of orientation, only we're not orienting toward a dangerous door. The posture of our hearts in all of our relationships, no matter where we fall in the pecking order of our relationships, if we are the parent or if we are the child or if we're the boss in the workplace or the subordinate, no matter where we fall in the hierarchy, in all of our relationships, Paul wants us oriented toward Jesus, following or, following or leading for him. In fact, I think this is the main takeaway for us today. We call it the big idea. It's kind of like the big hook that you can take home with you, hopefully, that sort of is an encapsulation of everything that we see here. So here's the big idea. Fueled by the Spirit, no matter where you are in the pecking order of your relationships, orient first to Jesus and then to each other. First to Jesus and then to each other. You know, everyone wants a happy home, a rewarding job. The very existence of Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 9 shows that God cares a great deal about the ordinary give and take of our home lives and of our work lives. So whether it is filling out spreadsheets in the office or folding up your fitted sheets at home, uh, we should be oriented to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all oriented to Jesus. And so if, if Jesus' orientation is the call on our lives, and if it leads to the most flourishing homes and workplaces, it would do us well to find the one person in the world who is best at this, who is best at Jesus' orientation, so we can learn from them how to do this. I used to work at a local software company, and scattered throughout our complex were some people that we called SMEs, subject matter experts. They were the leading experts in their field. So if you had a question about something related to that field, you would go to that person first. I was never a person approached by anyone as a subject matter expert. But if Jesus is our ticket to a flourishing home and a flourishing workplace, and, there, and if there is an SME who knows how to orient everything to Jesus, then we ought to seek out that subject matter expert. It's not me, but like my friend who orients his seat to the door at the coffee shop. This one person in all of the universe orients everything to Jesus always. Here's what I mean and who I mean. 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the most Jesus-oriented person ever. The scriptures make it clear that anytime a person bows to the Lordship of Christ, the Spirit of God is at work. The Holy Spirit is up to something. It is the Holy Spirit's main mission in life to exalt Jesus. John 16, 13 and 14, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. He will, he will shine a spotlight on me. Therefore, when we as individuals are filled with and controlled by the Spirit, we are in all ways oriented toward Jesus. Whether in our homes we're at work. So just as sure as the earth orients around the sun, so will a spirit-filled believer's home life and work life orient around the sun. Do you see what I did there? I felt pretty smug about that. The sun and the sun, okay? Read it carefully. When the spirit reigns in your life, you do everything you do with a view to honoring Jesus. So the spirit is the one who promotes 
and empowers or fuels us to keep the sun at the center of our home and employment lives. Let me prove it from the text real quick. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 18, we were commanded to do this, to be filled with the Spirit. And then almost every single verse after that, all the way through the end of our text today, 6-9, it shows us how the Spirit works in us to orient all of our lives to Jesus. So look at chapter 5, verse 19. The Spirit produces songs to the Lord Jesus. In 5.20, the Spirit produces gratitude to God in the name of the Lord Jesus. In 21, the Spirit produces submission and reverence for Jesus Christ. In 5.22, wives submit themselves to to their husbands as to the Lord Jesus. In 5.25, husbands love their wives as the Lord Jesus loved the church. In 6.1, children obey their parents in the Lord Jesus. In 6.4, fathers bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord Jesus. 6.5, bondservants obey their earthly masters in singleness of heart as to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 6.9, masters leave off threatening because they too have a master in heaven, the Lord Jesus. I mean, this just might be the single most Jesus-saturated section of Scripture in your entire Bible. And the crazy thing about this is that it is nestled right into one of the most ordinary and practical sections of your Bible, too, that deals with the most mundane things of our, of our lives, marriage, parenting, and work, stuff we do every day on autopilot, right? This is no accident. We need spiritual power to do the normal stuff of our lives to Jesus, for Jesus, oriented to Jesus. So let me just encourage you, one sort of subtext here is to pray directly to the Spirit and ask Him for His help in this. You cannot do any of this that we'll talk about today without the power of the Spirit. He is the SME, the subject matter expert. Paul here is big time sort of blurring the lines between the sacred and the secular. He's he's blurring the lines. He's saying that Jesus isn't a Sunday thing. Jesus is bigger than Sundays. He's certainly not less than Sundays, but he's bigger than Sundays, and he ought to invade it all and then to shape it all. Your search history when your boss is on vacation, or your work ethic when your boss is on vacation, your attitude when your kids do something that they shouldn't, how you fill out your spreadsheets and how you fold your fitted sheets. When family members and employees are filled with the Spirit, everything they do is oriented to Jesus. So let's take our cue from Paul, and we will work through these a section at a time, uh, and we'll deal with the home first and then with work life. So number one here, at home, Filter your responses to each other through Jesus. At home, filter your responses to each other through Jesus. Verse 1, look at it. Obey your parents through this filter in the Lord. Or look at verse 2. Fathers, raise your kids rightly through this filter. The instruction of the Lord. Everything is filtered through Jesus. And Paul is speaking directly to kids here. He's like, children, you guys need to obey your parents. So one underlying assumption here when we read this is that children were in the Sunday gatherings at Ephesus Community Church, at least sometimes. We've tried to make this a reality here at Trinity. Every fifth Sunday, uh, our kids three and up join us, and then once per month, some of our older kids join us, third third graders and up, because we think highly of our kids. We think that they can and should be able to handle hearing the Word of God. And we find some support for that right here in Ephesians 6. If you're sitting there thinking, man, I could not convince my kids to sit through this if I offered them 100 bucks. 
if, if that's you and you'd like a little help thinking through maybe some, some helps on how to get there, I would love to sit down and chat with you and strategize with you and pray with you. So let's, let's connect if that's you. But, but let's break this down a little bit further here in the text. Miriam has this shirt that she wears occasionally. It only has four words, but they illustrate very powerfully what her mornings, every morning, is oriented to. It says, okay, but first coffee. Okay, um, but first coffee. From the moment she wakes up until that first amazing sip, every thought that flits through her brain is filtered through this one idea. What was that? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but first coffee. Uh, I, I think this is a helpful metric for our relationships and how we interact with each other in our homes. Okay, but first Jesus. But first Jesus. And by that, I don't mean you have to stop and pray and have your devotions before you interact with anybody. Um, I, I mean that the filter through which we view all of our relationships in the home ought to be Jesus. My initial response is through Jesus as the filter through which the other person will receive my communication. So it's me, the filter of Jesus, and then the other person. That's how we ought to operate with one another. Here's maybe another way of saying it. Relationships between parents and kids shouldn't be built primarily on responses to each other, but to Jesus. I'm instructing my kid on the fact that his or her room is, the mess in his or her room is not okay. But first, Jesus. I'm going to filter that communication to them through the filter of Jesus. Um, like I'm talking directly to Jesus when I address my kids about the mess. You know, sometimes I think that we feel that in order for us to offer true obedience to God, we have to do it without any hope of reward. But this is just not the story of the Bible. Look at verse 2. Paul quotes the Ten Commandments here uh, in verse 2, which calls on children to honor their parents with the aim of a particular benefit. Says this, that it may go well with them and that they may live long in the land. Of of course, long life blesses the kids, right? We all have this God-given instinct to live as long as we can. This is one reason that we are so grieved when life is cut short for someone that we love. But when you think about it, the long life of a child is good news for the parent too, right? Because parents need strong, healthy, loving children to care for them in their old age. There's nothing wrong with enjoying and pursuing the benefits of obedience. That's really like what the entire book of Proverbs is about. It's, it's basically saying that practically speaking, life just works better when you follow God's commands. If you could like encapsulate Proverbs, that would be it. Life will work better for you when you follow God's commands, practically speaking. I'm not saying it will be easy for you. That's all I'm going to say about the quote in verse 2. At some point in our future, we will hit on the Ten Commandments and we'll go more deeply into what, the, what Paul is getting after there and then uh, what, what is going on back there in Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Um, but, but let's move to the more practical sections here. Um, let's break this section into two parties here. Um, you've got the parents and you've got the kids. Kids, you're first today. Um, kids, obey like Jesus is your parents. Kids, obey like Jesus is your parent. You can see it right there in verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because it's right. By children, uh, Paul is just referring to kids who are unmarried and still living in the home. That's the category he's thinking through here. So kids, if you're in here, 
or parents, you can help your kids think this way. Kids ought to filter their responses to their parents through Jesus first, almost like they're obeying him and not their parents. There's something really freeing here. Kids don't have to obey their parents because their parents are more important than them. We aren't. We know that. Sometimes we act like we are, but we are not more important than our kids. Kids obey as part of their loving obedience to Jesus himself. And parents, just notice here the blunt brevity of the scriptures in verse 1. Paul's like, kids, obey. And let me tell you why. It's right. That's it. That's it. I just say this to some of you parents to free you from feeling like you always have to give a long-winded answer to the question, why, mommy, or why, daddy? You don't have to. Sometimes you may want to. Sometimes it may be best to. But there is a God-authorized brevity here. And sometimes it's good for our kids to just obey because it's right. It's a good practice for them, maybe a painful practice for them. One day they'll be working for some punk boss that will not be willing to answer the question why for them, and they're going to throw a fit. You don't want them throwing a fit and losing their job. If you don't want them to be faced with that then, don't let them operate in that way now. So what is this mythical obedience that Paul is referring to here? Children, obey your parents. Uh, I can remember thousands of times growing up when my dad made me recite this definition of obedience, usually through tears because I had done something really stupid. Um, But here's what he always told me. He said, Josh, obedience is three things. Doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with the right attitude. My kids have heard this a zillion times too. They're not making eye contact with me now though. Um, (laughs) Parents, we have found this to be a really helpful metric in our home. It's really clear, and it's something that we rehearse all the time. There's not really any mistaking obedience with disobedience when you have this clear of a definition or this clear of a metric. If one of these three things is missing, it's not obedience, and they know that they have stepped out of bounds. And if it is not obedience, there is very often a consequence. Of course, there are tons of opportunities to show mercy and to show patience. But to be honest, especially, I think, in younger stages of life, what is needed is not so much flexibility, but predictability. This is what obedience is. These are the metrics that we operate under. And kids need to know, our kids need to know that when they have missed one of these three things, they have sinned against God and they have sinned against the parent. Uh, But they also, they need to hear that, but they also need to hear about their advocate. They need to hear about the sin and they need to hear about their advocate. Years ago, I had taken one of our girls into a room in our house to talk with her about some particular way that she had sinned against her sister. I don't even remember what it was, and I don't even remember which kids it was, Um, so I'm not going to owe them a dollar today by naming them. Uh, But unbeknownst to me, one of her sisters had slipped into the room, didn't even see it, and she had hidden in the closet. Um, And when I was leaving the room after we had talked through whatever the, the issue was, I spotted her and I asked her what she was doing in the closet. She said, I was, I was going to stand between you and my sister to take her correction for her, which is a really sweet thing, and it's a true story. Uh, amazing. Uh, that hasn't happened since, but, uh, <laughs> but this is exactly what Jesus did for us, only in a much bigger way. He stepped in to receive our punishment from God himself 
which is way scarier than daddy's punishments. We all disobey, but Jesus steps in to save the day. This is the good news, and our kids need to hear it all the time. There is a metric. There is a law, but there is an advocate, too. Let's keep moving. Mom and dad, especially dad, parent like you are Jesus with his instruction and with his discipline. If you're parenting like Jesus, you're going to use his words as the defining paradigm for your home. I want to highlight three things here. Both moms and dads are called to do this together. Both moms and dads are called to do this together. Both are mentioned as a special object of the child's obedience. Do you see verse 1 there? Children, obey your parents, mother and father, in the Lord. So both moms and dads carry the weight of the responsibility to bring their children up in the Lord. This purpose of marriage is broad. Or the purpose of marriage, I should say, is broad and robust. I realize not all of us in here uh, are married or able to have children. Our hearts hurt for you. We wish it was a different story. We know some of you have been through uh, miscarriages even recently. But for a moment, I'd like to address those of us who do have children. Uh, the purpose of your marriage is not just to add more bodies to the planet. The purpose of your marriage is to increase the number of little Christs on the planet, Christians, little mirrors of God and his glory. I've told some of y'all this story before, so excuse the repeat, but most of you have not heard it. Uh, a year ago, we were visiting friends in Texas, the Rogers, those of you who know them. Uh, they have a few kids. They leave toys laying around the yard, uh, like my kids do, made me feel a little bit better about my yard. So while I was walking through their backyard, uh, I noticed a bow and arrow laying on the ground. So I picked it up and I gave it a whirl. Uh, and you need to know that uh, they've actually moved since then, so they don't live in the same house. But uh, they, they lived right next to a schoolyard, like a, a playground. Um, and you probably know how the story goes at this point. If the bow and arrow is in my hand and the schoolyard is right next to their house, um, here I am thinking that I'm going to fire this arrow directly into the back fence. But what I did is fire that bad boy over the back fence uh, and into the schoolyard. Thankfully, this story does not have a bloody ending. The arrows had rubber tips. Um, and there were no kids playing in the yard at that time anyway. So, uh, but if I did have a real arrow and there were kids out there, we may have had some issues. But did you know that the Bible compares our kids to arrows? Psalm 127.4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Arrows begin as unformed, naughty, not like N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, though that could probably be fitting here, but K-N-O-T-T-Y. Arrows form as unformed, uh, arrows begin as unformed uh, wood, naughty and rugged. Someone has to get a knife and whittle that thing down so it becomes aerodynamic, right? The wood needs to be refined so it can fly straight towards its target. Children, God's spiritual arrows and our spiritual quivers, need the sanctifying truth of God's word in their souls so that they can soar toward the target of their lives, being like Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says to train up our kids in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. One of the reasons, parents, one of the reasons, maybe the primary reason that God put kids in your life is to pierce the darkness of this world with the truth of God's word through your kids. They are the arrows of your life. 
What a privilege to weaponize our children to be forces for good and for light. Our kids are not burdens to carry. They are weapons of grace to light up this world. Maybe you need a perspective reset today. We can tend to think, oh, you know, I've got this, I've got this big burden to carry, but it is not. It is a joy and a delight and a privilege. And I think that the dangerous trap that many parents, I put myself in this category, have fallen into is this. We think that we can delegate the critical role of arrow whittling, or we might say raising kids in the, in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. We think that we can delegate that role out to the hands of others, like our Sunday school teachers or youth pastors or pastors or Christian school teachers or whatever. But delegation of that is not God's design. Our kids need parents who love God and who don't delegate their precious God-given responsibility, who are willing to reprioritize their work lives and their play lives to become the youth pastors of their kids' lives. And if just for a second I can address those of you who cannot have kids or maybe uh, do not have kids yet or maybe your kids are out of the home already, um, no matter which of those categories you fall into, you can still help us fire these arrows out into the world. You can help parents aim to make their children followers of Jesus. You can be spiritual mothers and fathers to our kids, even if you are not their actual mom or dad. Maybe you've heard recently that there is an epidemic of high school grads that are just leaving the church. They're leaving the church in droves right now. It's very sad. And there's been a lot of significant research into why this is happening and why it's happening in such large numbers. And one of the reasons is the lack of non-family adult relationships inside the church. Non-family adult relationships inside the church. Here's what a recent study from Barna, uh, if you're familiar with him, in Lifeway found out. It says, millennials who stay in the church after high school were twice as likely to have a close personal friendship with an adult inside the church. This much is clear. The most positive church experiences among millennials are relational. This stands true from the inverse angle as well. Seven out of ten millennials who dropped out of church did not have a close friendship with an adult, and nearly nine out of ten never had a mentor at the church. The epidemic isn't kids leaving the church. The epidemic is our community not coming around our kids to help them stay in the church for the sake of their souls. We need to come around those outside of our biological family and invest in them. It takes a church to raise a kid. This is something that we can all help with in here, even if we do not have our own biological children. So please, I beg of you, if that is you in that category, uh, even if there are kids not actively growing up in your home right now, serve in our Trinity Kids classes. Help us fire our kids out into the world for Jesus' sake. Take your kids out to dinner. Take, take our kids out to dinner. <laughs> um, <laughs> Take them out for ice cream. Pour into them. Give us free babysitting and invest in them. I was kind of joking about that. But there are just so many ways that you can think creatively outside of the box to invest in the kids here. I'm sure most parents right now would long for other mature Christian adults that are willing to pour in and fill the cracks where they have failed. Okay. I want to make another observation or two here about the sphere of the home. 
dads have the leading responsibility of bringing children up in the Lord. Note that when the focus shifts from the duty of the kids to the duty of the parents, the father is referenced as the primary responsible party, not the mother. Why? Why dads? This leading responsibility for fathers in raising children is a continuation of the same roles that we talked about last week in marriage. Back in Ephesians 5, 23 and 25, Paul says, if you look, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Paul here is just simply teasing out the implications of headship in marriage to the leading responsibility for our raising our kids. The husbands bear the responsibility in both directions. John Piper says this, so what turns out is that the deepest meaning of marriage, displaying the covenant love between Christ and the church, is underneath this other meaning of marriage, making children disciples of Jesus. It's all woven together. Good marriages make good places for children to grow up and see the glory of Christ's covenant-keeping love. Even though this head of the home stuff is increasingly unpopular in our culture, and if you're here this week but weren't here last week, go listen to it on, on, uh, on the podcast or on YouTube. If it troubles you and you want to talk about it, it would be a joy to sit down with you and, and talk about that with you. But with this stuff being increasingly unpopular in our culture, I, I think it actually ring, uh, rings true in real life when you discover the stats of fatherless children. Children in father-absent homes are almost four times more likely to be poor. Children living in female-headed families with no spouse present have a poverty rate of 47.6%, over four times the rate in married couple families. Fatherless children are, not, are at a, a dramatically greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse. Children of single-parent homes are more than twice as likely to commit suicide. Listen, I am no, in no way saying that in homes where there is only a mother, you can't do this. That is not the point at all. I'm not saying that you're doomed, if that's you. I only quote these stats, uh, these sad stats, to say that God legit knows what he's talking about when he says that fathers need to be in the home and taking, primarily response, taking primary responsibility for their kids. So I think what the Word of God states implicitly here is that dads matter deeply. Don't wish these years away, dads, these hard years. You're going to miss this quote a country singer, you're going to want this back. This is not in the script. You're going to wish these days hadn't gone by so fast. So take a good look around. You might not know it now, but you're going to miss this. Don't wish these years away, parents. Dads, if you have been more preoccupied with hobbies or work, reprioritize. Be present and active and raise your kids in the instruction of the Lord. Get them ready to fire out into the darkness of this world. Are you reading the scriptures with them? Are you helping them understand the scriptures? Are you just farming all of this out to mom or to the Trinity kids teachers? If this sounds enticing to you or exciting to you and you have no idea where to start, connect, shoot me a text, shoot me an email. Let's talk about this. Well, just like last week, Paul turns the heat up on the dudes even a little bit more here. Dads have the responsibility to be gently unprovocative. Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, the point here is not that any time a child is angry that the father has sinned. 
This verse can't be used as emotional blackmail by our, by our kids against us. Dad telling me to clean my room provokes me to anger. You're sinning, Daddy. No, that's not the way this works. Paul is warning us, dads, that there is a temptation to do and say things that will cause legitimately avoidable anger in our children. You know, most of us are aware of the obvious things to avoid in our homes. Yelling, excessive, heavy punishment, shaming our kids for things they can't control. I think Paul warns against provoking anger because anger is the most common emotion we feel, though, when authority requires us to do something that we just flat don't want to do. What rises first is anger, which is why Paul is, is honing in on this in Fathers. Dads embody authority, and children embody, from birth, self-will. And when these two realities clash, anger flares. A two-year-old throw, throws a tantrum, a teenager slams a door. So, Look, dads, because of this reality, there are going to be plenty of angry kids, even with the best of fathers. There are going to be plenty of angry kids. The reality is that we cannot fully avoid anger in our children. But the call here is to make every effort that we can, without compromising truth or holiness, to avoid being provocative. The call here is to maintain gentle authority, while at the same time minimizing the possibility of an angry response. For example, just this past week, uh, I took a privilege away from a child uh, that was a heavier weight than it should have been. It was a heavier correction than it should have been in comparison with the actual sin itself. And I very literally and unnecessarily provoked her to anger in this. Unfortunately, it happened right at school drop-off, so both she and I had to sort of live with this hanging over our heads throughout the day. But later that day, after school, I confessed this to her, and I changed the punishment. I didn't remove punishment. I just changed it to be more fitting for the crime so that she could more easily set aside her anger. I had unnecessarily provoked her to anger by wanting to squash that kind of attitude. It didn't need a squashing. It needed a correction, but not a squashing. In this, I was trying to consciously maintain my authority while at the same time minimizing the possibility of anger. So what do we do, dads, if we have been angry? Being a Christian doesn't mean just offering forgiveness. It also means receiving forgiveness freely from God for all of the failures of all of our anger. It means letting the smile of God on us in Christ melt our hardened, sometimes emotionless, low-grade anger? Do you have low-grade anger that just kind of always exists under the surface? God forgave you. God has been kind to you. God is tender-hearted to you, and that's all because of Jesus. Therefore, in Christ, by the Spirit, dads, we can do this. We can pull out, root out that low-grade anger and operate with tender hearts towards our kids. We can put away our anger, and we can awaken Jesus-oriented joy in the hearts of our kids with our tender hearts. If your love for your kids has just been eaten up with anger, repent, but then enjoy the sweet fruits of that repentance, the smile of God upon you, because Jesus was never sinfully angry in your place. This week, I pray that the Lord would give us a united focus on what really matters in marriage. Husbands and wives loving like Christ. 
in the church and the children seeing it and by God's grace loving it, okay? Point one is way longer than point two. Um, so let's move on here. Covered, having covered home life, let's look at work life. At work, filter your actions toward each other through Jesus. I don't know if there's somebody in the back who can turn the AC on, but can we, is it hot or is it just me? I might just be like getting after it today. Um, Norm, can you try turning that on? Thank you. Whew. Filter your actions toward each other at work through Jesus. Depending on which version of the Bible, let me just say this too. Yesterday in our house, we had the heat on and the air on at the same time, and they were just fighting. So you might want to double check to make sure that the heat is off while the air is being turned on. It was really comfortable all day long. At work, filter your actions toward each other through Jesus. Depending on which version of the Bible you're looking at right now, there may be some troubling terminology that you see in the text used in verses 5 to 9. Some of your translations probably, probably use slaves and then masters. Many of our translations render this bond servants and masters. But listen carefully. We should not read this text through the lens of American chattel slavery. They're nothing alike. In America, we cannot talk about slavery in any other terms other than black and white. Slavery in Paul's time, though, was not race-based, and it was, not, uh, it was seldom lifelong. I'm not defending slavery in any way, and the Bible doesn't defend it either. I'm just saying that it was much different, much different than what we've come to know as slavery, and particularly what is so uh, culturally divisive now as we look back on the history of our nation. Slavery, the way that it developed in America, is clearly outlawed in the Old Testament in the severest of terms. Check this out from Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. I mean, according to this text, those involving themselves in the African slave trade would have been given the death penalty. God hates racism with a deathly violent passion. Every human is precious because they are made in God's image. So probably the best way to understand this text then is to relate it to our modern-day work environments with typical hierarchies of bosses to subordinates. And I think we can apply the same sort of terminology that we did to family life. Employees, work like Jesus is your boss, as to the Lord. Work like you're working to the Lord. So what kind of work ethic would we employ if Jesus was our boss? Verse 7 calls us to orient our work as a service to Christ even more than to your boss. Service to Jesus even more than to your boss. Look at verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man and not to your boss. So what would it look like to work for Jesus if he was the boss? How would your behavior be conditioned by this reality? Well, you would offer humble and submissive obedience if Jesus was your boss, right? Humble and submissive. Look at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with submission and humility, as you would Christ. And this is, like, this is less about quaking in your boots with Jesus as your boss, not that kind of fear, but more like working with an intense love and respect for Jesus, for your true boss, capital B, boss. Just imagine having your, your favorite artist or athlete or a famous politician or someone you think really highly of. Imagine having them over for dinner. So maybe you're hosting, I don't know, Obama or Bono or LeBron or Chip and Joanna, probably in our house. Um, you'd want everything to be just right. 
Chip and Joanna, for my wife's sake. I see you, Jonathan, covering your face in embarrassment about me. She would invite them over. Um, You would want everything to be just right, though, wouldn't you? With the food skillfully prepared, with the decorations exquisitely laid out. You'd be nervous, but the nerves would come from a place of privilege and not burden. This is how we should work for our true capital B boss. You'd also offer sincere, authentic service. Look at verse 6. Bond servants, obey with a sincere heart, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, we are to be wholehearted employees, not just doing the minimum to avoid a penalty from our boss. Obey the instructions from your boss like they came directly from Jesus. That's the call, the really high calling here. So, so don't leave a jacket on your chair to make it look like you're in the office when you aren't. Don't claim the work of someone else as your own. Don't fill out your, your time form, your timesheet with lies. Don't spend countless hours of your day on personal administration when you're paid to do a job. Offer sincere, authentic service, like Jesus is the boss. And finally, if Jesus was your boss, you'd also offer reward-oriented service, like we talked about before. It's not a bad thing to work for reward. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. In other words, hear this. This is good news for us today. Our work does not have to be unhelpfully tied to the amount of reward we get from our bosses. One commentator explains. He says, as a parallel passage reads, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. He says that word, and, before inheritance that you see up there, should really be translated as the. Paul is talking about the bliss of the world to come. That's what we work for. In a unique way, Christians have been set free to enjoy work because of the prospect of a joyful inheritance before us, a weight of glory beyond compare, a raise unlike any of us could ever conceive of. Paul is touching on something really important here. It's this. We all work for an audience, and the call here is to work for an audience of one. Work for Jesus. Work like Jesus is your boss. But why? And to what end? Tim Keller clarifies this really helpfully. He says, working like Jesus is your boss frees us from both overwork and underwork. Neither the prospect of money and acclaim nor the lack of it will be our controlling consideration. He goes on to say, doing our work through this Jesus filter both ennobles work for those in danger of viewing it as drudgery and demythologizes work for those of us in danger of making it their, their identity, our identity. Working for Jesus frees us from finding our identity in our success or in the failure of our jobs. No need to get sky high when we're crushing it, and no need to be in depression when we're getting crushed, because we're doing it in and through and for Jesus. Paul has a word for you bosses in here today, too. Bosses, serve your employees like Jesus is your boss. Look at verse 9. Your master is in heaven. Don't forget you have a boss, too, boss. I think it might be easy to just slip past that little phrase there in verse 9. Speaking to bosses, look at it. It says, do the same to them. Do the same what to who? Well, it's a reference back to verse 7, where Paul calls on subordinates to offer goodwilled service. So Paul is basically saying, in all of your bossing, act towards your subordinates as if you are their fellow subordinate. 
In the way bond servants treat their masters with great respect, so bond servants treating their masters with great respect, uh, with great respect for their needs, so the boss ought to treat their subordinates with great respect for their needs. So if you're the boss and someone walks into the room uh, with you and your employees, they may not quite know what the hierarchy is. Maybe you're both on your hands and knees cleaning up. Bosses should take an interest in the people under their leadership. And Paul goes on to say, stop threatening them in verse 9. It's not suggesting that subordinates can't be warned of punishment for wrongdoing. He's just saying we shouldn't primarily rely on fear as the primary tactic to get the subordinates to do what we want them to do. In conclusion, we could give a bajillion observations and applications about this text. These last two weeks have been uh, longer than normal for us and a lot heavier and uh, denser, Um, but we could go on and on. There is a tsunami of practical applications, but I want to end with something that's maybe, uh, maybe a paradigm shift for you rather than something specifically to do. Um, I have this reminder on my calendar every two weeks to say this particular thing to my kids. It's more like a liturgy back and forth with them. This was not original with me, but I think it can apply to kids. It can apply to parents, to bosses, and to subordinates. For a moment, I often do this like with a a hand on their head or a hand on their knee uh, to, to communicate intimacy and care for them. Uh, But for a moment, I want you to imagine that you're the child and you're getting ready to hear these things from your father. God is your father and he's communicating this to you. He communicates it to you, the child, or to you, the parent child, or to you, the boss child, or to you, the employee child. And here's what he communicates to you. The parent says, do you see my eyes? Can you put this on on screen for us, please? I think it's in there. No, don't have it. Okay, cool. No problem. Um, The parent says, do you see my eyes? And the child says, yes. And the parent says, can you see that I see your eyes? And my kids will say, yes. And I'll say, do you know that I love you? And the child will say, yes. Do you know that I love you no matter the good things that you do? The girls will say, yes. Do you know that I love you no matter the bad things that you do? Say, yes. Who else loves you like that? They say, God, even more than me? Yes, Daddy. Rest in that love. Rest in that love. So child, children in here, parents in here, employees in here, bosses in here, you are loved. No matter how well or poorly you've performed, because of Jesus' sinless life and violent death and victorious resurrection, you are accepted and loved and cherished. If your kids have walked away from Jesus, you are accepted and loved and cherished. If you stink as an employee and the spreadsheets were terrible last week and you got in trouble, you are loved and cherished by your boss, your big B boss. Let this miraculous reality impact your mundane routines. Fueled by the Spirit, no matter where you fall in the pecking order, orient first to Jesus and then to each other. Let Miriam's coffee shirt inform your actions this week. Okay, but first, Jesus. First, Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need your help. Spirit of God, we want to talk to you directly. We need your help to orient to you always. So, Spirit, I pray that you would help us in this endeavor. Amen.